GCSE Biology Audio, Cells and Microscopes by kscience.com. Both animal cells and plant cells have a cell membrane which controls what enters and exits the cell. Both animal and plant cells have ribosomes which produce proteins. Protein synthesis is another way of saying, producing proteins. Both animal and plant cells have mitochondria which release energy during respiration. Both animal and plant cells have a cytoplasm which is a gel-like substance where cell reactions take place. Both animal and plant cells are eukaryotic cells, so they have a nucleus. The nucleus stores DNA and controls the activities of the cell. Plant cells have a cell wall, which strengthen and support the cell, as well as protecting the cell. Plant cells have a permanent vacuole which stores sap. Plant cells have chloroplasts, which are the site of photosynthesis. Bacteria don't have a nucleus. They have chromosomal DNA and plasmid DNA instead. Bacteria have a flagellum so they can move. Bacteria have ribosomes that produce proteins. Bacteria have a cell membrane that controls what goes in and out of the cell. They have a cell wall that protects and strengthens the cell. They don't have mitochondria, which releases energy. Sperm cells have a tail, flagellum, so they can move to the egg. Sperm cells have many mitochondria that release energy, so the sperm can move faster to the egg. Sperm cells have an acrosome that contains enzymes that break down part of the egg's membrane so the sperm can enter the egg. Light microscopes have a lower magnification and resolution than electron microscopes. Light microscopes use light, whereas electron microscopes fire electrons at samples. Electron microscopes have a higher magnification and resolution than light microscopes. You can only see larger subcellular structures when using a light microscope, whereas you can see the internal structures of organelles if you use an electron microscope. The samples for an electron microscope are dead, whereas you can use living samples on a light microscope. To use a microscope you firstly prepare the slide. You place the specimen on the slide. If it is a plant specimen, you use the stain iodine. This stain makes the cells visible. Without this stain you would not be able to see the specimen. You then place a coverslip over the specimen. The coverslip keeps the specimen flat and holds it in place. You start off with the lowest objective lens. You use the focusing wheel to focus the image. You change the objective lens to a higher magnification to increase the size of the image, and you then use the focusing wheel to focus the image. GCSE Biology Audio Cell Transport by kscience.com Living organisms require substance such as oxygen, glucose and ions. The move by the three transport processes, diffusion, active transport and osmosis. Diffusion is the movement of particles from a high to low concentration. If particles in a gas are in a high concentration, the gas particles will spread out from a high to low concentration. A partially permeable membrane is a membrane whereby some and not all particles can diffuse through the membrane. Osmosis is the movement of water, from a high to low concentration, through a partially permeable membrane. A partially permeable means that it can let some substances through and not allow other substances through. Active transport is the movement of particles from a low to high concentration through a protein carrier molecule, and it requires energy. It transports particles against the concentration gradient. If a viscous tube containing a solution is 10% salt solution, then it will be 90% water. The viscous tube is in the beaker containing 15% salt solution, so there will be 85% water. There is a higher water concentration in the viscous tube, so water will move into the solution in the beaker from the viscous tube by osmosis, from a high concentration of water to a low concentration of water. After some time, the viscous tube A will appear smaller. 
In the practical when investigating osmosis in potatoes, the independent variable is what we change, so it is the sugar concentration. The dependent variable is what we measure, and it was the percentage change in mass. Control variables are variable we keep the same, and an example is the volume of sugar solution. You firstly measure the initial mass of the potato cylinder, then place it in the sugar solution for a set time. You then remove the cylinder from the sugar solution and measure the final mass. To calculate the percentage change in mass you do sad face, final mass, initial mass, equals initial mass multiplied by 100. You repeat this process with the same volume of potato cylinder at other sugar concentrations. You plot a graph of percentage change in mass versus sugar concentration. The x-intercept is the sugar concentration inside the potato. To calculate the surface area of a cube you would calculate the surface area of one face and multiply that surface area by 6. To calculate the surface area of a cuboid you calculate the surface area of each face and then add them together. The unit for surface area can be m squared, cm squared, mm squared, um squared. To calculate the volume of a cube or cuboid you multiply length x width x height. The unit for volume can be m cubed, cm cubed, mm cubed, um cubed. To simplify the surface area to volume ratio you divide both the surface area and volume by the volume. In larger organisms like humans that have a smaller surface area to volume ratio oxygen can't diffuse from the atmosphere through the skin into our cells. So we have lungs that contain air sacs called alveoli, which have a large surface area, a one-cell thick wall, and a large blood supply. Unicellular organisms or worms can exchange gases through their skin or cell membrane, because they have a large surface area to volume ratio. A cell's surface area is large enough to supply the volume of the cell with enough substances. Some organisms have villi that line the small intestine. Villi increase the rate of diffusion of substances because they have a large surface area, a one-cell thick wall, and a large blood supply, and large surface area to volume ratio. The following content is for AQA students only. The villi are folds in the lining of organs like the small intestine. The villi increases the surface area of the small intestine. The folds only the villi are called microvilli. These smaller folds increase the surface area even more. By increasing the surface area of the lining of the small intestine will increase the rate of absorption of nutrients into the blood. The villi have a thin cell membrane. This is to increase the rate of absorption of nutrients into the blood. Capillaries provide a good blood supply in the villi so that nutrients can be carried away more quickly, so that more food can be absorbed. The gas exchange surface in fish are called gills. Oxygen diffuses from the water into the blood and carbon dioxide diffuses from the blood and into the water. Gill filaments are thin plates that make up the gills. Gill filaments have a large surface area to increase the rate of diffusion. The gill filaments are covered in lamellae, they have a large surface area. They have lots of blood capillaries, and a thin surface layer of cells. These adaptations increase the rate of diffusion of the gases oxygen and carbon dioxide. Blood flows through the lamellae in one direction and water flows over it in the opposite direction. The blood and water flow in opposite directions to one another. This maintains a large concentration gradient between the water and the blood. The carbon dioxide concentration is always higher in the blood than the water, and the oxygen concentration is always higher in the water than the blood. If oxygen is always in a higher concentration in the water, it will always diffuse from the water and into the blood. Whereas if the carbon dioxide concentration is always lower in the water, carbon dioxide will always diffuse from the blood and out into the water. GCSE Biology Audio, Enzymes by kscience.com
In the lock and key theory the enzyme is the lock and the substrate is the key. Enzymes are biological catalysts, which mean they speed up the rate of reactions in our body. Enzymes can break down larger molecules in smaller molecules, or build larger molecules from smaller molecules. To break down a substrate into products, the substrate must bind the active site of the enzyme. The active site of the enzyme and the substrate are specific to one another, so only one substrate can bind one enzyme. When the enzyme and substrate bind, this is called the enzyme-substrate complex. The enzyme will then break the substrate down into products. The enzyme is not used up in the reaction, and it is used again. The substrate starch binds the specific active site of the enzyme amylase. Amylase breaks down starch into the product glucose. The substrate protein binds the specific active site of the enzyme protease. Protease breaks down protein into the product amino acids. The substrate lipids, fats, binds the specific active site of the enzyme lipase. Lipase breaks down lipids into the product fatty acids and glycerol. When the active site of an enzyme changes shape, it is called denaturing. When an enzyme denatures, the active site of the enzyme changes shape. When an enzyme denatures, the substrate can no longer bind the active site of the enzyme. If less substrate binds the active site of the enzyme, less products will be formed by the enzyme. An enzyme is a biological catalyst, which speeds up the rate of reaction. The optimum temperature is the temperature where the enzyme's rate of reaction is at its highest. If you increase the temperature above the optimum temperature, the enzyme's active site will denature. This means the enzyme's active site changes shape. The substrate can no longer bind the active site of the denatured enzyme, so the rate of reaction decreases. If you decrease the temperature below the optimum temperature, the enzyme's active site doesn't denature, but the kinetic energy stored in the enzyme and substrate decreases. This means they are moving more slowly, so there are fewer collisions between the enzyme and substrate, therefore there is less product being formed, as the rate of reaction decreases. To break down a substrate into products, the substrate must bind the active site of the enzyme. The active site of the enzyme and the substrate are specific to one another, so only one substrate can bind one enzyme. The enzyme will then break the substrate down into products. The optimum pH is the pH where the enzyme's rate of reaction is at its highest. If you increase the pH above or below the optimum pH, the enzyme's active site will denature. This means the enzyme's active site changes shape. The substrate can no longer bind the active site of the denatured enzyme, so the rate of reaction decreases. When increasing the substrate concentration, the rate of an enzyme-controlled reaction increases if there are free active sites of enzyme. More substrates will bind to more active sites, forming more enzyme-substrate complexes. However, the rate of reaction will stop increasing and remain constant if all the enzyme's active sites are filled. No more substrates can bind to active sites as they are all full. To calculate the rate of an enzyme reaction where all you have is the time taken for the enzyme to completely turn the substrate into product, you use the formula 1000 divided by time or 1 divided by time depending on the size of numbers you are using. To calculate the rate of an enzyme that takes 50 seconds to completely break down substrate into product, you do the calculation 1 divided by 50 seconds which gives you 0.02 seconds. If you use 1000 divided by T, the rate you would calculate would be 20 seconds. In the amylase and starch experiment, the independent variable is what we change, which is the pH. The dependent variable is what we measure, which is the time taken for starch to be fully broken down. Control variables are variable we keep the same, and an example is the volume of pH buffer solution.
You firstly add a set volume of amylase into a measuring cylinder and mix it with a set volume of pH buffer solution. You then add one drop of iodine to every well on a plate of wells. You then mix the amylase pH buffer solution to the starch and press start on your timer. You add a drop of the amylase pH buffer starch solution and iodine well every 20 seconds. If the iodine turns, blue starch is still present and hasn't been fully broken down. If iodine remains orange, the starch has been fully broken down. If the iodine always changes color to blue, the amylase will have denatured at that pH. The optimum pH is the pH where starch is broken down the in the fastest time. GCSE Biology Audio, Photosynthesis by KScience.com Photosynthesis is the process whereby plants use light energy from the sun to produce the sugar glucose, which it uses for respiration. The gas carbon dioxide diffuses into the leaf from the atmosphere. Water absorbed through the roots is transported to the organelle called a chloroplast, which you find in the cells of the leaf. Energy from the light that hits the chlorophyll in the chloroplasts causes the water and carbon dioxide to react. The products of this reaction are oxygen and glucose. Glucose remains in the plant, whereas oxygen is released out of the plant back into the atmosphere. During photosynthesis carbon dioxide reacts with water to form oxygen and glucose in the presence of light. Glucose is used for respiration in the mitochondria, which releases energy. The energy is used to make bonds between glucose molecule to form cellulose, which is used to strengthen and support cell walls in plants. In plants glucose combines with nitrate ions to make amino acids, which then form proteins. Plants convert glucose into lipids, fats, which is stored in seeds. Plants also store energy by converting glucose into starch. The leaf has many chloroplasts in the palisade cells. This is to increase the rate of photosynthesis. The leaf has a transparent waxy cuticle, which is transparent to allow light through to the palisade cells. On the underside of the leaf are the stomata, which are pores in the leaf. The stomata are controlled by guard cells. When the stomata are open, the gas carbon dioxide can diffuse into the leaf. The carbon dioxide diffuses from the stomata through the air space in the spongy mesophyll layer. The spongy mesophyll tissue has an air space to increase the rate of diffusion of gases through the leaf. The xylem supplies water for photosynthesis. After photosynthesis has taken place, the gas oxygen diffuses out of the leaf through the stomata. Glucose is transported away from the leaf through the phloem. When guard cells are flaccid, the stomata is closed. For the stomata to open, water moves into the guard cells by osmosis, whereby water moves from a high to low concentration through a partially permeable membrane. Now filled with water, the guard cells are turgid, which leads to the stomata remaining open. Gases can now diffuse in and out of the open stomata from a high to low concentration. For the stomata to close, water leaves the guard cells by osmosis. The guard cells are now flaccid, which closes the stomata. Roots are lined with specialized cells called root hair cells, which increase the surface area of the root. By increasing the surface area, you increase the rate of diffusion, osmosis, and active transport of substances into the plant. The root hair cells absorb water by osmosis, which is the movement of water from a high to low concentration through a partially permeable membrane. 
The root hair cells absorb mineral ions by active transport, which is the movement of particles from a low to high concentration through protein carrier molecules, which requires energy. Transpiration is the movement of water from the roots to the leaves in one direction via a tube called the xylem. The xylem is made of dead cells, not living cells. These dead xylem cells have lignin in them that strengthens the xylem cells to withstand the water pressure. Because the xylem cells are dead, they have no cytoplasm, so are hollow. Xylem cells have no end cell walls. These adaptations mean that the process of transpiration happens more quickly through the xylem, so the rate of transpiration through the xylem increases. Translocation is the movement of the sugar sucrose through the plant. Sucrose is formed from two glucose molecules bonded together. Translocation takes place in two directions, which we call bidirectional. Translocation takes place in the phloem, not the xylem. The phloem is made of two types of cell, sieve tube elements and companion cells. Sieve tube elements have end cell walls with pores in them, this is to allow sucrose to move through the phloem tissue. Sieve cells have little cytoplasm, which increases the rate of translocation. The phloem's companion cells that have many mitochondria to release energy for the active transport of sucrose. The sucrose is pumped via protein carrier molecules in the companion cells. The phloem is living tissue. The following content is for higher students only. A limiting factor is anything in short supply preventing photosynthesis occurring at its maximum rate. If photosynthesis occurs happens at a slower rate, then less sugar will be produced and the amount of energy available for cell growth will decrease. There are three factors that can limit the rate of photosynthesis. Carbon dioxide concentration. Light intensity. Temperature. The rate of photosynthesis increases as light intensity increases. The graph levels out at the point when another limiting factor stops any further increase in the rate of photosynthesis. The rate of photosynthesis increases as carbon dioxide concentration increases. The graph levels out at the point when another limiting factor stops any further increase in the rate of photosynthesis. The rate of photosynthesis increases as temperature increases until the optimum temperature is reached. The rate of photosynthesis then decreases as the temperature increases beyond the optimum temperature. This is due to the enzymes becoming denatured. GCSE Biology Audio, Homeostasis and Hormones by KScience.com Homeostasis is the maintenance of a constant internal environment in the body. Homeostasis is controlled by the nervous system and the endocrine system. The body is controlled by three basic parts. Receptors which detect a stimulus. Coordination centers in the brain, spinal cord or a gland. Effectors which produce the response. A hormone is a chemical substance which is produced by a gland. Hormones are carried in the bloodstream and are sent to specific target organs. For example the hormone adrenaline is released by the adrenal gland. One of the target organs of adrenaline is the heart increasing the heart rate. When blood glucose levels are too high, the pancreas secretes the hormone insulin. The hormone insulin binds the insulin receptors on cells. When insulin binds the insulin receptors, the glucose channels in the cell membrane opens. 
Now that the glucose channels are open, glucose leaves the blood and enters the cell. The glucose is used by the mitochondria for the process of respiration. This decreases the blood glucose levels. The pancreas of a type 1 diabetic produces no insulin, so they must use insulin injections as their insulin source. The insulin binds the insulin receptors on the surface of their cells, which opens glucose channels. Glucose is transported from the blood and into the cells and it is used for respiration in the mitochondria. The pancreas of a type 2 diabetic produces insulin. Because fat interferes with insulin receptors, the insulin can't bind the insulin receptors as well. So fewer insulin receptors are bound, meaning fewer glucose channels open. Therefore, less glucose enters the cells from the blood and blood glucose levels remain high. Some type 2 diabetics require insulin injections. During days 1 to 5 of the menstrual cycle a woman menstruates, which means the uterus lining breaks down. During days 5 to 13 estrogen causes the uterus lining to thicken. On day 14, ovulation takes place, whereby an egg is released. The hormone progesterone maintains the uterus lining. Estrogen continues to thicken the uterus lining. If the woman is pregnant, she does not menstruate, however, if the woman is not pregnant, she loses her uterus lining during menstruation. A condom prevents sperm entering the vagina. Condoms prevent both STIs and pregnancy. They are 98% effective. A diaphragm is placed over the cervix and prevents sperm entering the uterus from the vagina. They do not prevent STI transmission, but they can prevent pregnancy. They are 92% effective. Condoms and a diaphragms are both barrier methods of contraception. The pill is a hormonal method of contraception and is 99% effective. The combined pill contains the hormones estrogen and progesterone. The estrogen stops the pituitary gland from releasing FSH. The inhibiting of FSH means that the egg can't grow and mature. If there is elevated progesterone, this stimulates the production of mucus that covers the cervix. This mucus prevents many sperm from entering the uterus from the vagina. If there is no mature egg and a lot less sperm, then the chances of fertilization the egg by the sperm is reduced. The combined pill is 99% effective if used correctly. The following is for higher students only. The pituitary gland produces FSH which causes the egg follicle to grow and mature. As the egg follicle grows and matures it releases more estrogen, which thickens the uterus lining. The estrogen then inhibits FSH production, and the pituitary gland then secretes LH instead of FSH. The LH stimulates ovulation, which is the release of an egg from the egg follicle. The egg follicle turns into the corpus luteum, which produces the hormone progesterone, which maintains the uterus lining. If there is no fertilization of the egg, progesterone levels fall which leads to menstruation, which is when the uterus lining to break down. If the woman is not pregnant, the progesterone fall, which stimulates FSH production from the pituitary gland. Women who have low FSH levels will produce egg follicles that don't grow and mature. If she wants to have a baby a doctor can prescribe her FSH and LH injections, which can increase the chances of egg maturation and therefore the chance of pregnancy.
LH will also increase the chances of ovulation. If hormone treatments don't work, she can go through IVF, whereby she is given FSH and LH injections to cause the eggs to grow and mature. Multiple eggs are removed and mixed with sperm in a Petri dish. The sperm fertilizes the eggs to form multiple zygotes. The zygotes divides into an embryo. Multiple embryos are then implanted into the woman's uterus to increase the chance of a successful pregnancy. Ixi can be used to inject sperm into the egg to increase the chances of a successful fertilization. IVF is an amazing way for parents who can't conceive to have children. For women under the age of 35, the chances of a successful round of IVF is 29%, so it could take multiple rounds of IVF before a woman gets pregnant. There are some ethical concerns over IVF due to the fact some embryos could get destroyed during the process. Some people believe embryos are life, but you must remember that embryos only have the potential to be life, as embryos would not survive outside of the woman. IVF can be stressful for families due to the low success rates. People are also worried about designer babies, the idea that people can chose their appearance of their offspring based on genes. The hypothalamus detects thyroxine levels in the blood. When thyroxine levels are low, the hypothalamus releases TRH, which is detected by the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland then secretes TSH, which is detected by the thyroid gland. The thyroid gland produces thyroxine when TSH levels are high. If thyroxine levels are too high, the hypothalamus releases less TRH, which causes the pituitary gland to release less TSH, and therefore the thyroid gland produces less thyroxine. Adrenaline affects the liver, heart muscle cells, and blood vessels. Adrenaline causes heart muscle cells to contract more quickly, which increases blood pressure, increasing glucose and oxygen supply to cells, which increases the rate of respiration in mitochondria, so more energy is released. Adrenaline targets the liver, whereby it speeds up the breakdown of glycogen to glucose. Increased glucose in the blood leads to increased rates of respiration in the mitochondria. Blood vessels to muscles widen, increasing blood flow and the supply of oxygen and glucose to muscle cells to increase the rate of respiration in mitochondria. GCSE Biology Audio, Circulatory System by kscience.com Humans have a double circulatory system. The blood flows from the heart to the lungs, back to the heart, and then to the rest of the body before returning to the heart. Blood enters the heart from the lungs via a blood vessel called the pulmonary vein, which transports oxygenated blood from the lungs to the left atrium of the heart. The muscles of the left atrium contract, and through an open valve, the blood flows into the next chamber called the left ventricle. The valve back to the left atrium closes, to prevent the backflow of blood. The walls of the left ventricle contract pumping blood into a blood vessel called the aorta, which carries blood around the body. Deoxygenated blood returns to the heart via vessels called the vena cava. They supply the chamber called the right atrium with blood. The muscle wall of the right atrium contracts pumping blood into the next chamber called the right ventricle. The blood is then pumped to the lungs through a blood vessel called the pulmonary artery. The left ventricle is thicker than the muscle wall of the right ventricle. This is because the left ventricle pumps blood further around the body than the right ventricle, 
which pumps blood a shorter distance to the lungs. The left ventricle is thicker because it needs to pump blood with a greater force and pressure. The right ventricle muscle wall is thinner than the left ventricle because it pumps blood a shorter distance to the lungs. Blood is therefore required to be pumped with a lower force and lower blood pressure. The septum separates the left and right side of the heart. A hole in the septum causes oxygenated and deoxygenated blood to mix. This lowers the concentration of oxygen in the blood, so less oxygen is supplied to respiring cells. A hole in the septum causes blood pressure to decrease, as blood from the left ventricle is is pumped into the right ventricle, so blood is pumped at a lower pressure from the left ventricle into the aorta. The stroke volume is the volume of blood pumped out of the left ventricle every beat. The heart rate is the number of times the heart pumps blood out of the left ventricle every minute. It is the number of times the heart beats every minute. The cardiac output is the total volume of blood pumped out of left ventricle every minute. To calculate the cardiac output, you multiply the stroke volume by heart rate. Capillaries have a one-cell thick wall to increase the rate of diffusion of substances in and out of the capillary. Capillaries are one-cell wide so substances travel less far to cross the wall of the capillary. They also have a large surface area to increase the rate of diffusion of substances into and out of the capillary. Arteries transport blood away from the heart and veins transport blood to the heart. Arteries transport blood at high pressure so they have a thicker muscle wall and elastic layer than veins. Veins transport blood at low pressure so they have valves to prevent the backflow of blood. Arteries have a narrow lumen, which increases the pressure of blood in the artery. Veins have a wide lumen and blood is transported at lower pressure back to the heart. An alveolus has a one-cell thick wall. Capillaries also have a one-cell thick wall. Both the alveoli and capillaries have a one-cell thick wall to increase the rate of diffusion of oxygen from the alveolus and into the capillaries, and carbon dioxide out of the capillaries and into the alveolus. Alveoli and capillaries both have a large surface area, this is to increase the rate of diffusion of gases. Capillaries are one red blood cell wide, which decreases the distance gases must travel to diffuse to the red blood cells. The alveoli have a good blood supply in the form of capillaries, this is to maintain the concentration gradient, so gases can diffuse in and out of the alveolus. The lining of the alveolus is moist so gases can dissolve, therefore increasing the rate of diffusion of gases. Another word for red blood cells is erythrocyte. Red blood cells have a biconcave shape to increase their surface area. By increasing the surface area, the rate of diffusion of oxygen in and out of the cell will increase. A red blood cell has no nucleus, this is to increase the space available for hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the molecule that oxygen binds to, so the more hemoglobin there is in the cell, the more oxygen the red blood cell can bind and carry. Blood plasma is a yellow liquid where substances like glucose, hormones, carbon dioxide, and urea are dissolved. Blood platelets cause blood to clot. Another word for red blood cells is erythrocytes. Red blood cells have a biconcave shape to increase their surface area. By increasing the surface area, the rate of diffusion of oxygen in and out of the cell will increase. Phagocytes are an example of a white blood cell that engulfs pathogens. 
Air is inhaled through our mouth and nose. The air then travels down our trachea and then enters two bronchi. The singular for bronchi is bronchus. Air is then transported from our bronchi to our bronchioles, which deliver air to air sacs called alveoli. The singular for alveoli is alveolus. Gas exchange occurs in the alveoli. Our lungs are protected by bones called ribs. Between the ribs are muscles called intercostal muscles. The diaphragm contracts and relaxes controlling whether we inhale, breath in, or exhale, breath out. GCSE Biology Audio, Respiration by CaseScience.com Aerobic respiration occurs in cells and it is the release of energy from the organelle called mitochondria. It is the complete combustion of glucose in the presence of oxygen. The products of aerobic respiration are carbon dioxide and water. Aerobic respiration is an exothermic reaction because there is a release of energy. Anaerobic respiration takes place in the organelle cell the mitochondria. It is the incomplete combustion of glucose in the absence of oxygen. There is a release of energy, so we call it an exothermic reaction. Anaerobic respiration releases less energy per glucose burned than aerobic respiration, which is the complete combustion of glucose in the presence of oxygen. The product of anaerobic respiration is lactic acid. The equation for aerobic respiration is oxygen plus glucose carbon dioxide plus water. The equation for anaerobic respiration is glucose lactic acid. As you exercise you increase energy demand for aspiring cells. So your breathing rate and heart rate both increase. This is to increase oxygen and glucose supply to respiring cells. When insufficient oxygen is supplied to respiring cells, the mitochondria start respiring anaerobically, and lactic acid is produced which causes fatigue in muscles, and muscles don't contract as effectively. Respiration takes place in the mitochondria of cells. Aerobic respiration is when oxygen reacts with glucose and the products are water and carbon dioxide, and energy is released. When someone exercises their energy demand increases, so their breathing rate and heart rate increases, this is to increase oxygen and glucose supply to respiring cells. When someone's breathing rate reaches their maximum rate, there is insufficient oxygen being supplied to cells. When this happens, anaerobic respiration also takes place, which is the incomplete combustion of glucose into lactic acid and the release of energy. When exercise stops there is an oxygen debt, so breathing rate remains higher because oxygen is needed to break down lactic acid into carbon dioxide and water. Aerobic respiration is the release of energy from the mitochondria. This energy is needed for metabolic processes in the cell or body. Metabolism is the sum of all the reactions in a cell or body. Energy is needed to form the larger molecule glycogen from glucose, Energy is needed to form amino acids from glucose and nitrates. Proteins are synthesized by the the organelle ribosomes. Energy is needed by the ribosome to form proteins from the smaller amino acids. Energy released by mitochondria is used to break down proteins into urea. Aerobic respiration takes place in the mitochondria of plant cells. Anaerobic respiration in yeast cells is called fermentation. It is the breakdown of glucose to form carbon dioxide and ethanol. 
This process is an exothermic reaction because there is a release of energy. The ethanol produced during fermentation is used in alcoholic drinks. GCSE Biology Audio, Ecosystems and Interdependence by kscience.com An ecosystem is an interaction between all the living and non-living parts of an environment. All the living organisms in an ecosystem is called a community. All the organisms of one species is called a population. The place where an organism lives is called a habitat. We call plants producers because they produce their own food by the process of photosynthesis. Plants use the energy from the sun for photosynthesis. Producers are eaten by primary consumers, and they consume the biomass of the producer. The biomass of a primary consumer is eaten by a secondary consumer, and the biomass of the secondary consumer is eaten by the tertiary consumer. A food chain is a list of organisms showing their feeding relationship. The organisms are joined by arrows. The arrows show the transfer of energy and food between them. The different stages in food chains are trophic levels. Food chains always start with a producer, usually a green plant or algae that photosynthesizes, transferring energy from sunlight into the chemical energy store glucose. Not all the biomass is transferred from one trophic level to the next. Only about 10% of the biomass is transferred from each trophic level to the next. When an organism like a rabbit eats grass the energy stored in the biomass of the grass is used to make new biomass in the rabbit. Energy is transferred to the surroundings by heating during metabolic processes such as respiration. This energy is no longer available to the next trophic level. Another example of how biomass can be lost between trophic levels is excretion, whereby feces and urine are excreted. Undigested food passes through the organism and is ingested as solid feces. This biomass is now no longer available to the next trophic level. If the organism dies and is not eaten, this means that the biomass is not available to the next trophic level. Pyramids of biomass are a visual representation of biomass stored at each trophic level. There is always more energy stored in the biomass of producers than the primary consumer, and there is more energy stored in the biomass of primary consumers than secondary consumers. This is because not all the energy is transferred from one trophic level to the next trophic level. Some of the energy stored in the biomass can be transferred to the surroundings. An abiotic factor is a non-living factor that affects living organisms. Water is an abiotic factor because it is non-living. If a plant receives no water, and moisture levels decrease, the plant can die because it can't undergo photosynthesis. If a living organism receives no oxygen, another non-living factor that we call an abiotic factor, the organism can die. Temperature, pH levels of the soil, and mineral levels in the soil are other abiotic factor that can affect other living organisms. A biotic factor is any living factor that affects other living organisms. Examples of biotic factors are predators that eat their prey, this is an example of a living organism affecting another. If a fungal disease kills a plant, the fungi is a biotic factor because it is a living organism. If there is no food that means an animal can't eat, and if the animal dies, this is another example of a biotic factor. Competition between organisms are biotic factors, 
because if one animal prevents another one from eating or finding a mate, this is a biotic factor as one living organism is affecting another living organism. Organisms in an ecosystem rely on each other for their survival. This relationship is called interdependence. Any change in numbers of prey affects the numbers of predators and vice versa. A predator-prey relationship graph visualizes the interaction between predators and prey. There are nearly always more prey than predators. The number of predators increases, because if there are more prey, there is more food for them to eat, so they don't starve, so they survive and breed. The number of prey will decrease if there are more predators, because more prey get eaten, so less prey survive and breed. The number of predators will decrease if there is less prey, this is because there is less food for the predators, so more predators will starve and die. A transect is a line across a habitat or part of a habitat. You place a belt transect, which can be a measuring tape along the ground of the habitat you wish to investigate. The number of organisms of each species along a transect can be observed and recorded at regular intervals using a quadrant. This is systematic sampling, not random sampling, as you place the quadrant equal distances along the belt transect, examples can be every one meter, or every two meters. You then count the number of organisms in each quadrant, and measure the abiotic or biotic factor at each quadrant. The distribution and abundance of organisms in a habitat is affected by the biotic factors, other living organisms, that might affect them. It is also affected by abiotic factors, such as availability of light or water. A parasitic relationship is one where only one organism benefits. An example of a parasite is a flea. The flea feeds on a dog and only the flea benefits. A tapeworm is another parasite, as the organism it lives inside won't benefit from the relationship. A mutualistic relationship is one where both organisms benefit. An example is a cleaner fish and a shark. The cleaner fish eats the parasites on from the skin of the shark, and the shark has the parasites removed. Another example of a mutualistic relationship is the clownfish and sea anemone. The sea anemone uses the feces from the clownfish for nutrients, and the sea. Anemone protects the clownfish, as its poison doesn't affect the clownfish, so it can lay eggs. Legumes are a type of plant that have nodule on their roots which contain nitrogen-fixing bacteria. The nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the root nodules of legumes use the glucose from photosynthesis by the plant, as well as getting protection inside the root nodule. The nitrogen-fixing bacteria fix nitrogen into nitrates for use by the plant. Because nitrates are used by plants for making DNA and proteins, Having nitrogen-fixing bacteria in the root nodules is beneficial. The nitrate levels in the soil are also increased, increasing the fertility of the soil. This is a mutualistic relationship because both organisms benefit from the relationship. GCSE Biology Audio, Human Impact on Biodiversity by kscience.com Deforestation is the clearing of large areas of trees. Clearing trees leads to fewer. Habitats for animals to live and breed in, which results in fewer species of organism, which is a reduction in biodiversity. This can cause the numbers of species to become so low that we call it an endangered species. With fewer trees, there are less trees to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. 
If there are fewer trees, there will be few roots under the ground that will absorb water after it rains. This will lead to increased risk of flooding. Conservation is protecting a rare or endangered species or habitat. Conservation methods include breeding in captivity, restricting human access to habitats, armed security, and growing more trees, which leads to increased biodiversity. Overfishing has led to large declines in many fish populations around the world. Fish farming is a method of raising large numbers of fish in a small space to provide food for humans, a source of protein. Fish farming helps ensure fast growth of healthy fish. In fish farms, large numbers of fish are kept in freshwater or seawater enclosures, for example nets and or cages. These fish are carefully controlled and monitored. Fish farms have many advantages over wild-caught fish. Selectively bred fish ensuring high-quality, fast-growing fish. Fish farming controls the water quality and the ability to control feeding to ensure rapid growth. Fertilizer is added to the soil of crops to increase the crop yield. Fertilizers contain nitrates and phosphates. These minerals are used by the plant to produce proteins and DNA, which helps the plant grow more rapidly. Therefore, increasing crop yield. Another way to increase crop yield is by spraying pesticides, which kill pests and reduces the volume of crops destroyed due to being eaten by pests. A biological control can be used to control pests by introducing a non-native species to a population. An example is the cane toad, which was introduced in Australia to kill the beetles that were destroying crops. Energy is transferred from the sun to the earth by radiation. The radiation transfers energy to the earth's surface. Some of the energy is absorbed by the earth's surface and some energy is re-radiated back up towards space. Some of the energy is transmitted out into space, but some energy is absorbed by the greenhouse gases. The greenhouse gases re-radiate energy back down to earth, as well as out into space. If more energy is re-radiated back down to earth, more energy is absorbed by the earth's surface, which increases the temperature of the earth's surface. This is called global warming. The more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the more energy is re-radiated back down to Earth, and less energy is transmitted out into space, therefore increasing the Earth's temperature, increasing global warming. Global warming is the increase of the Earth's surface temperature. Increasing the Earth's surface temperature causes the polar ice caps to melt, this causes sea levels to rise. When the ice caps melt this reduces the habitats for animals to live in, so they die so biodiversity decreases. If it gets too warm, it might mean that animals might have to permanently migrate away from their habitat to cooler regions. As climate change happens, this can lead changes in migration patterns. As climate change happens, this can lead to changes in distribution of animals. As climate change happens, this can lead to decreased biodiversity. Water in oceans, seas, lakes, and rivers will evaporate due to the heat energy from the sun, which causes the liquid water to evaporate into a gas called water vapor. As water vapor rises it cools and condenses back into a liquid. When the liquid droplets get too large, they fall as precipitation back into the bodies of water. Water goes through plants via transpiration. Water we drink leaves our body via our sweat and excretion. 
we breath out water after the process of respiration. This water vapor rises, cools and condenses back into liquid and falls as precipitation. Carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere by plants by the process of photosynthesis, which the plant uses to convert into the carbon-based sugar called glucose. When animals eat plants, they use the glucose for respiration, which releases the gas carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. If an organism dies, decomposers such as detritus feeders, fungi and bacteria decay dead biomass, they use the carbon-based sugars for respiration, which adds carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. If an organism dies and it is preserved, over millions of years it can form fossil fuels. When a fossil fuel combusts, it releases carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Nitrogen in the atmosphere can be converted to nitrates by lightning, these nitrates will fall to the ground and enter the soil and are then absorbed by roots. Nitrates are used to make proteins and DNA. Bacteria called nitrogen-fixing bacteria can convert nitrogen to ammonia. These nitrogen-fixing bacteria can live in the nodules of plants called legumes, and they can be found free in the soil. The ammonia is then used by bacteria called nitrifying bacteria, which convert the ammonia into nitrites. The same nitrifying bacteria convert nitrites to nitrates, which are then absorbed by plants and used to make proteins and DNA. Animals can eat the plants and use the ingested nitrates to build proteins and DNA. Organisms urinate which adds urea to the soil, and organisms can also die. Decomposers a bacteria break down protein and urea into ammonia which nitrifying bacteria convert nitrites then nitrates. Denitrifying bacteria convert nitrates into nitrogen.